Welcome to another episode of SJ Explained. I'm Rovek. Hey, I'm Elliot. Yeah, and uh, again, we're on Skype. We're doing this virtually. Mm-hmm. The circuit breaker measures. Elliot, Dave, they've extended the circuit breaker all the way to first June, and you know, I was just starting to. I, I'm starting to see a crease in my bed where I've just been sitting the whole <laughs> past past two weeks. That's that's, that's nice. Uh, I I've, that's, I've confined myself to a new part of the house to try to do uh, work as well. So. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've heard a trick is to really mentally allocate a space as your workspace and then another space as your recreation space and to not let those two spaces overlap. Yeah, that, that, that uh, I've, I've learned the hard way. So there was, I felt super sick last week because I couldn't demarcate my um, workspace and my fun space together. So it was just like work 24-7. And oh man. Yeah. Hey, but good enough for today. So <laughs> right. we can yeah. press on. Yeah, well, the numbers seem to be coming down with one exception, which is, you know, the numbers in the migrant worker dormitories. And I'm really hoping that we can really decisively bring down the numbers as what the prime minister is asking. But at the same time, I think it's inevitable that we look at the migrant worker population and really ask ourselves what's happening there. And and that's kind of why I chose the topic for today, uh, which is the 2013 Little India riot. Not anything specifically to do with the current situation with COVID-19, but I thought it's a good historical event that allows us to take out some of these these, uh, long-term trends and actually see how they may relate to what's happening right now as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, were you in Singapore during the 2013 Little India riot? 2013, I think I was not in Singapore at this point in time, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah I, I, I really don't think so because uh, this was in like December 2013 and I think I might have just left Singapore to study in the UK for a bit. Should, ah. that, should, that should have been the case. I... Honestly, like if, if I was in Singapore and this happened and it's not in my like conscious memory, I must have been drunk or something. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was not here too. And I think this was the first year I actually went overseas to study. So awesome. when I saw this happen, I was actually really, really surprised and kind of scared because, you know, what, what was the last riot in Singapore? We kind of learned this in our social studies. Last riot that we had was racial riots in, wait, I know this, uh, 69? Yeah. I I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah. And so so we've been taught, you know, we want to avoid these riots. They impede social stability. They are dangerous. Lives are risk. And so we want to reduce the possibility altogether. And then 2013, all of a sudden, a riot happens and everyone's just shook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what what I do know for a fact is that the government hates riots. We've only had a few in our in our lifetime, and I think it's part of our collective consciousness to all just like dislike the idea of like protesting and rioting. Uh, it's a very Singaporean thing for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so when this happened, I think there was a lot of emotion stirred, partially because I, I think it, it felt almost like a blemish to have a riot happen after all of this warning and, and, and education against riots. And then, um, but on the other side, there was also a lot of sympathy and just surprise at what would have possibly stirred this to, to what's happening. So, so let, me, let me give a bit of a preamble. The 2013 Little India riot took place after a fatal accident occurred at 9.23 p.m. at the junction of Racecourse Road and Hampshire Road in Little India. 
And this caused an angry mobs of passerby who had witnessed this accident to attack the bus that was involved. And then they also attacked the emergency vehicles that were later deployed to help deal with the situation. They assessed that about 300 migrant laborers were involved in the riot, which lasted for around two hours. And... Yeah, this is the second riot in post-independent Singapore. So that was that was what <laughs> I was referring to. So 1964 was pre-independence, 1969 was post-independent, and and this was the second in since Singapore became independent. So, you know, basically this whole situation was brought under control before midnight, and the officers from the Special Operations Command and Gurkha contingent, part of the overall police force, were deployed. And there were around 300 police officers who were dispatched to deal with rioting. So there were around 300 migrant laborers and 300 police officers involved in this. And and one of the one of the key things that was that was shared or observed was that you know alcohol was a big player in all of this. There were beer bottles being thrown and and a lot of violence. So you know that's that's the overall top level picture. We'll we'll dive into the timeline a bit more. Okay. But when I when I heard about this. Yes, I was in the U.S., but I also was watching this unfold live because 9.45 in, uh, sorry, 9, 9 p.m. in Singapore is basically around 8 a.m. in Chicago where I was. And so I was I had just woken up and all of a sudden I see this happen and I'm just like, what is going on in my country? <laughs> <laughs> what were your immediate thoughts when you when you saw all of this happen? Uh, oh, man. I think the the night that it happened, basically, I know that uh, I didn't. I don't catch up very regularly with the kind of like social media news. If I was in the UK at that point in time, I was probably focusing very much so on uh, spending time with my then girlfriend. So I remember hearing about it through my family WhatsApp chat back in the day, uh, and they were saying like, "Hey, hey, can I can I want race riot here?" I was like, "Riot!" And it's like, "How big? How big can this thing be?" And then in the next day when uh, when the news kind of reported and then there were pictures, right, where the, like, I think they, they toppled a bus or they, they definitely decimated one of the buses. And I was like, yeah. Dang, okay, that's that's pretty bad. Uh, only after seeing the pictures did I uh, start to dig a little bit deeper. You know, I, I always imagined or assumed that if there was a riot in Singapore, it'd be quelled really quickly. But upon reading the details of this, like, it wasn't a, it wasn't like a short stint. There was like there was a good amount of time to rebel. There's a good amount of time like it, things were set on fire. If I was not mistaken, if, That's if crazy. you Google if you Google the pictures, Little yep. India riot, you would be very surprised to see some of the stuff out there because and you the the, the question I had to ask myself was is this actually Singapore? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it looks like a picture out of like an apocalyptic movie. Yeah, but, I, but it I, is Singapore. What, what tipped me off was that the, there was all the riot police, right? So, you know, your, your riot shields and the batons and they will form that uh, form a line and, and whatnot. That to me was, was interesting. And uh, when my family sent me those photos and I dug a little bit deeper, um, that's when I realized, man, uh, we've really taken uh, the fact that we have very peaceful, peaceful nights. Like that, that's something that we can take for granted. Every year we have Racial Harmony Day. We kind of talk about, you know, oh, we just we just keep maintain the peace. Like that's always a, a, a main a main stay message in mm-hmm. uh, Racial Harmony Day. This whole idea of acceptance and tolerance, um, we 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 leave it out there. And for that to happen, I think it was a big culture shock for us. Like we yeah. never knew that we could have 
an actual riot. Now, safe to say, thankfully, none of us like were, were there, but still, it's now a part of our collective consciousness that in the 2000s, right, that means that after the turn of the century, where we think we have wisened up, uh, we cannot take these things for granted. And I think that was... No, absolutely not. Yeah, that was the biggest thing for me. Yeah. The other part about this is that actually... It's it's ambiguous whether this was even whether you can consider this a race riot, right? Because this was basically migrant workers reacting to a bus driver mm-hmm. who had just accidentally killed someone. And and this whole <laughs> we'll we'll talk a bit about exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but I mean, like, yeah, there there wasn't like it wasn't writing like on racial lines per se. But I think at some level there were some racial tensions stirred from the event. That uh, yes, that's absolutely. more in the aftermath. Racial and xenophobic, I would yes, say. Yes, racial and xenophobic. I think that's why the narrative gets a bit uh, tangled and twisted throughout the uh, throughout the story. But yeah, I, I think once we go through a timeline of events, it'll make a lot of sense. Well, all right, let's jump into it. Okay, so let's start. Let's start the whole. Let's start the timeline. So Sunday is the most common weekly day off for a lot of these South Asian transient foreign workers in Singapore, and a majority of whom work in the construction industry. So tens and thousands of these workers, most of whom hail from states of Tamil Nadu, India, uh, they visit Little India on Sunday evenings to shop, run errands, socialize with friends. You know, just the basic like chill day, off off day stuff. So besides public transport. Uh, private bus services are also available on Sundays from the foreign worker dormitories to Little India under an initiative led by LTA. So, I mean, most of these worker dorms are all around the island. So I think this is a very good initiative by LTA by itself. Um, there are two boarding locations in Little India for the private buses. Uh, one is on Teka Lane and is overseen by the Singapore School Transport Association and the other along Hampshire Road by the Singapore School and Private Hire Bus Owners Association. They, they really need a better initiative I think it's very long um, before the riot occurred the private buses ferried about 23,000 workers to Little India every Sunday um, before the traffic incident happened however Kumaravelu had boarded a private bus on Teka Lane to return to his dormitory in Jalan Papan Kumaravelu is actually the main character right. in this yep. uh, and, and unfortunately the person who died he's, yeah he's the guy uh, who's the victim right yes mm-hmm <laughs> After so he was basically trying to return to his dormitory lah in Jalan Papan, uh, and however some of the workers then complained to the timekeeper, this guy called Wong Gek Woon, who works at, who at the time was working for the SSTA and in charge of keeping track of bus arrival and departure time schedules, uh, that Kumara <laughs> Vavelu was drunk. Okay, so this. Uh, this these are like key key uh, key important timelines. Uh, he was drunk and then jumped the queue for boarding the bus. Uh, and of course, with SSTA's policy, is not to ferry any intoxicated passengers. This is a safety measure. At this point, Kumara Velu was said to be walking unsteadily and had dropped his Bermuda shorts to his knees. Uh, Wong told him to disembark, which he eventually complied. Shortly thereafter, however, uh, Kumara Vavelu started chasing after the same private bus as it was moving off from the boarding location. He caught up with the bus when it stopped briefly before making a left turn onto Race Course Road. Okay, so you can see how this is starting to get really dangerous already. Uh, and as the bus began to make the turn, Kumara Vavelu, who was on the left side of the bus, stretched out his right hand, placed it on the moving bus, then lost his balance fell down into the path onto the bus's left front wheel, instantly ran over and died. So yeah. that that's the that's the official account. Nah. I always 
I'm very affected when people die, especially by accident. It's one of the most unfortunate things mm-hmm. to, to hear about. And in this case, it's so complicated because when this all of this happened, you kind of want to blame someone. But actually, is there anyone to actually blame in this case, right? Yeah, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to really, uh, yeah. There, there's no one to absolve, and there's no one to like uh, shift the responsibility to because, an ex- when it comes to an accident, everyone has like some sort of hand in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened after this? As soon as the workers who were in the vicinity, who were already congregating and spending their social evening, when they saw this, there was an outrage. And mm-hmm. they assessed that it was around 9.20 when Kumara Velu was basically run over by the private bus. Around 9.25, the police and civil defense were notified of the accident. But at this point, within around 10 minutes, so around 9.30, there was already around 100 people congregating and starting to display anger and, and, and some level of rowdiness. The thing was, as more, so it, it, was, it was really interesting to, to read a timeline of events because the initial police came and the crowd size was already a, a good amount. Yeah. As more police came, the crowd size increased because they started getting more unruly. I think definitely seeing this level of aggression from the crowd increased the police presence and the increase in police presence probably made this crowd more defensive and more unruly. I'm not I'm not I'm definitely not trying to attribute causality, but you know, you can suspect that there was a, a correlation. And actually you know what's super interesting about all of this? As I was doing my research, you can see a proliferation online of government articles on this. And the reason for it is, in my opinion, is that the government wants to be super factual about this because of how sensitive all of this is. In fact, when I talk to a lot of people about this, they try not to attribute any kind of subjectivity. They just want to keep it 100% factual, 100% objective. For sure, for sure. Right? It's like they're basically saying, like, we don't really know why the crowd became unruly. We just know that they were unruly. You can't attribute it to police presence. You can't attribute it to certain things. The Committee of Inquiry later on did make certain assessments, but, you know, at the end of the day, the government's position is we'll just talk about what can be factually substantiated. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Agreed. I think there's there's a lot of it at stake as well, right? If you're if you're the government, you want to really keep the peace and to not make this a racial component. Uh, th- so the official narrative has to be as objective as possible. That's yeah. that's like that's like a key component. And yet, like well, as we'll see later on in the aftermath, the lines that were drawn by the general public and the, like I guess public sentiment will kind of shape how you remember uh, this event. So after the police came and, and there was mm-hmm. some increase in size, a priority of the police and SCDF was to attempt to extract the victim's body from under the bus. They also wanted to extract the bus driver and his assistant so that they could be kept safe as the mob became more aggressive. There was reports that basically the mob was pelting people with items, right, including beer bottles yeah. uh, that were being thrown around. So then this is where at 10.30, the Special Operations Command arrived. So this is for around an hour after the, the, the initial accident. The Special Operations Command arrives and they activate a major recall of around 53 patrol cars from the police all throughout Singapore. They all come to this one place and they form up to disperse the mob. It is around 10.44 that they begin arresting rioters and this whole uh, operation then takes another hour 
before the mob starts to disperse. Yeah, end to end, it's around two hours and 25 minutes from when the accident happened all the way till the mob was officially dispersed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and after that, they were conducting high visibility patrols to make sure that there was no immediate after effect. That's mad. <laughs> yeah, that's one That's one, That's one. one night, you know? Yeah. All, all that one night. That's crazy. And, and again, I think with social media and with how fast news is spreading, I remember the police were making official updates on Twitter, on Facebook, but actually it was social media and the news outlets that were pushing stuff much faster. And that was where some of this misinformation was, was coming about, right? Where mm-hmm. people were saying, like this has happened and the police were like whoa, 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 whoa no one is dead except for this one person please don't spread fake news already was a big presence yeah here. yeah we need a post now back then it's a mad it's a mad series of events man it's- it was yeah it was actually i think it's it spiraled it spiraled pretty fast as well and that's that's how we know uh rioting in singapore this is like very fresh for us the fact that based on the timeline things grew very very quickly let's look at the at the timeline in a little bit more detail between the hours of 9:31 and 9:45 we saw numbers increase from 100 to 400 in terms of the crowd size mm-hmm. in that span of 15 minutes right and i the idea that the police reinforcements progressively arrive at the scene these two things in tandem in 15 minutes escalated like fourfold that has to be something that we've never experienced i mean i'm not not in the 29 years that i've been alive have i ever experienced that not yeah. for bubble tea dude that's crazy there were a total of 25 emergency vehicles that were damaged out of which five were set on fire mm-hmm. where was this fire even coming from actually i'm, I'm starting to think <laughs> uh, uh hey man well, there's alcohol <laughs> i'm sure someone set some rag on fire like People will find a way to set things on fire. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. There's got to be ways to set things on fire. That's crazy that 25 emergency vehicles were damaged in the riots. And five were set on fire. That's insane. Yeah. Um, Video footage showed that rioters are pushing police cars on their sides. There was a lot of outrage from reading these reports and watching the videos and looking at the pictures. Just a lot of anger that came about from... That one accident. Yeah, so oh, let's we can look at the numbers a bit a bit more in detail. So early estimates put the number of writers at four hundred, which later reduced to three hundred in the aftermath of it. Um, according to the Singapore Police Force, they dispatched three hundred riot police. The police made twenty seven arrests in relation to the riots, and in the police statement released to the media the next day on 9th December, it was specified that of those arrested, twenty four were migrant laborers from India. Uh, I, and this is important, right? That um, twenty. Out of the 27 arrests, 24 were migrant laborers from India, uh, two were migrant laborers from Bangladesh, and one was a Singapore PR. As you can tell, none of these people being IC holders. So when this was released to media the next day, you can only imagine the kind of uh, comments you will get on Facebook. Uh, subsequent mm-hmm. investigations revealed that the two Bangladeshis and the Singapore permanent resident were not involved in the incidents. So from 11th to 14th December, the next couple of days after, nine more laborers from uh, Tamil Nadu were similarly charged in court for the involvement in the riot. They were charged on 11th December, four on 12th December, and two on 14th December, bringing the total charge to 33. You look a couple months down the road, 10th February, and an Indian construction worker was sentenced to 15 weeks imprisonment on charges related to the riots. They they really went like all out 
to ensure, and this is a very quick turnover from like rioting to charging them, uh, to really try to put an end to this. Right? Mm-hmm. I think I think there was a lot of spotlight, not just Singapore, but I think on the, on the migrant worker com- community at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. The law basically states that anyone who is formed to be armed in a riot or using objects as weapon that can cause death can face up to 10 years in jail uh, with the possibility of caning. So you can see that these people arrested were really up against a very harsh sentence. And the fact that one of them got 15 weeks imprisonment only, you know, it really shows, okay, there was some kind of calibration as a result of all which of Which is good, which is good. I think calibration is important for our system. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think we, we talked about the riot and it's it's important for us to talk about the impact of the riot, both on actual legislation, actual policing, but also on our social consciousness on what's happening in Singapore right now as well, right, yep. with the COVID-19 issue. The first thing that the Singaporean authorities did was to commission a committee of inquiry to study the reasons for the riot, as well as its handling, because there was a lot of criticism. Why why did it take two hours for the mob to be dispersed, as well as to review the management of areas where foreign workers congregate? The thing here... And, and this is a personal view. The thing here is that there is an opportunity here to actually do something about the way that foreign workers spend time and give them a way to congregate in a way that's healthy. So there has to be a reason why they feel like they have to get drunk, that they have to get smashed. It's it's almost just like any other human behavior when you have nothing else to do. Sure, mm-hmm. you'll just load up on drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. right? So are there things that we're allowing them to do? Are there things that we are giving them to do? Because yes, they are not Singaporeans. Yes, they are. They don't earn a lot. But there are also downstream issues if we don't uh, treat them like human beings with, with the level of dignity and just giving them the things that they would need in order to live a proper life. Yeah, um, yeah. And what was interesting is that as a result of all of this, the 55-year-old Singaporean bus driver who caused the traffic accident was not found to be at fault. Uh, he was acquitted, uh, and they basically said that the main reason was because Kumar Velu was in Lee's blind spot during the crucial second Jesse Hoda accident. So he could not have known that Kumar Velu had run after the bus or was in his path. So you can't really blame the bus driver for this. In fact, the main reason why Kumar Velu fell was because he was intoxicated, right? His blood alcohol was nearly three times the threshold for motorists at the time of his death. And the fact that the road was wet, he got into this accident. So the bus driver was acquitted, right? But then the rest of the migrant workers who were arrested got charged and they had to serve their yeah. uh, oh, punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay, yeah. That's, that's a lot to take in, basically. <laughs> that's a lot to take in. I, I think the way we handle, we, we're handling things in the current situation for COVID-19 as well. I guess we can put that a little bit into light. Uh, a lot of, uh, especially because now our, our main issue is that the number of cases are spiking, not from local transmissions, right? Everything is coming straight from the worker dorms. So whether or not we've, we've like, we're supposed to be the ones who are studying these uh, things, right? Like, that's why why we want to have these collect committee inquiries. Uh, how can they be useful in our attacking of, like, modern-day situations as well? Understanding the culture, understanding, yeah. yeah, their, like, behaviors, and also trying to optimize the way we do things in Singapore because, like, not everything is uh, centered around us. 
yeah, we we do have like the fact that we have migrant workers to to help with our own local infrastructure. It means that they are, in essence, part of the Singapore system as well. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. So what's interesting is that because it was recognized that this wasn't a straightforward issue, they did appoint a committee of inquiry, like I said before, and this was led by former Supreme Court Judge G. Panir Selvam, who was appointed by then DPM and Minister for Home Affairs, Teo Chi Hien. The other members of the committee were John De Pavia, former president of Singapore NTUC, T. Tua Boa, who was the former commissioner of the SPF, and Andrew Chua Tiam Chui, who was the managing director of SME Care and chairman of the West Coast Citizens Consultative Committee. Yeah, can I elaborate a little bit more on like um, the the committee's like investigation process, right? Yeah. Um, so like as part of that process, a public hearing basically lasts about 24 days and was held for 19 February to 26 March in 2014. So where where that's just a couple of months after the riots itself, during which oral evidence was obtained from witnesses, including Lee Wong, SBF and SCDF officers, uh, foreign workers, business owners and non-governmental organizations and residents in Little India. So they, they basically try to put their finger on the pulse is what, you, mm-hmm. what they're saying here. Yep. Uh, and finally, after this entire process was done. Uh, they submitted a report uh, about six months later, so 27th June 2014, and three factors were identified to have contributed to the escalation of the Little India riot. So while the primary trigger was identified to be the accident, uh, the first other factor was uh, misperceptions. So they, they're attributing a big part of this to misperceptions. On the night of the incident, the rioters had probably held Lee and Wong responsible for Kumar Velu's death and were further aggravated upon seeing uh, the responding officers protecting instead of arresting them for the accident. So this, I mean, it, it, it seems as though there were like uh, racial biases being played here, la, if, you, if you think about it, right? They were protecting two Chinese dudes in a sea of like uh, of people even though they weren't dead like those two yeah. guys like yeah you know there was a, there was a dead migrant worker there and yet the first instinct was to protect the two Chinese dudes you can you can see yeah. how that could be a, a game of perception yeah. um, the second contributing cause identified by um, the committee was pertains to the culture and psychology of the crowd okay it was postulated that some foreign workers in the crowd wanted street justice for the deceased and thus an actor on the sentiment as they felt that the death of their compatriot was caused by the driver. In addition, a witness testified that the working class from Tamil Nadu tend towards a rebellious streak against law enforcers. This was also deemed by the COI to have been a possible driving force in the unfolding of events. And finally, the COI felt that while alcohol was not a direct cause of the riot, it was a major contributing factor to the nature and escalation of the unrest. This last point is very important because it it has led to one of the biggest... one of the large changes that has affected not me, but a lot of youths today. Uh, the riot eventually led to the implementation of the Liquor Control Supply and Consumption Act in 2015, banning consumption of alcohol in all public places from 10.30pm to 7am. This also included banning the sale of alcohol products such as rum and raisin ice cream, which I still think is crazy, between the time periods. Well, the, the, the good news is they reverted <laughs> on uh, products that contain minute amounts of alcohol. So, <laughs> rum and raisin ice cream is now purchasable in, in districts. Yeah. But, but yes, the, it is still illegal to consume alcohol in public places from 10.30 p.m. to 7 a.m., which is, wow. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an uncommon law in, uh, globally. 
you can see that they basically target places where migrant workers are likely to be congregating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so, a, there's a, there's a, this is a fun fact. Uh, one of our local rappers, uh, his name is uh, Lion City Boy, Mr. Kevin Lester. He has a song called 1030 and it's about this, it's about this band. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go check it out. It's a song called 1030. It's it's a bit rebellious, but it's about like party people, you know, like, hey man, who cares? 1030 or not, like I'll find a way to be, to, to have fun. Not alcohol fun, but like, you know, I don't need alcohol at 1030 onwards to have like the yeah. best night of my life is the, wow. it's like the message. Yeah, so it sounds very rebellious, but actually, it's like really positive as well. <laughs> well, what is additionally insightful is that the media and some NGOs pointed to the dismal living conditions and working conditions as probably a driving force for the riot, right? But the Committee mm. of Inquiry did not think the satisfaction of employment and living conditions had caused the mayhem and damage. Yep, yep. You know, I, I don't know how to feel about that because I think, yes, you can attribute certain things to the immediate riot, but there were other things that probably were underlying factors as well. And, you know, can we really expect the Committee of Inquiry to draw those links with the information that they had? Again, like I said before, there was an opportunity, uh, but they probably scoped it very tightly to make sure that it's precise, that it, it, it doesn't really open up doors that they don't want to open at this point in time and to really get over this hump before they tackle the issue again. What I think was an unfortunate result of that was that because they did not really deal with it here and there wasn't really an impetus to deal with some of these things later on, uh, we have some of these long-lasting effects, which I'll talk about later on as well. So besides the Liquor Control Act, there were more street lamps and surveillance cameras installed. There were more police on weekends in, in, in these areas. And the number of recreation centers for foreign workers were increased on the fringes. So meaning back at the hostels, basically they created more recreation centers there rather than allowing them to come into you know, some of these main city districts. Um, yeah. They also capped bus timing. So basically, the private buses that that were shuttling foreign workers to and fro, it would the latest bus would only leave at nine p.m. now, which basically meant that foreign workers would have to choose between taking the shuttle bus early and then conducting their social activities back at the dorms, or having to take on the cost of of traveling back by themselves, which would not have been easy because they live on the fringes. Now, there was a lot of discussions and and outcomes locally and internationally. We can see some of this, whether it's what the prime minister was saying, but there was a lot of views from the international community. So Bangladesh and India were also involved because it's their workers that were implicated in, in the riot. In fact, in India, what happened was that a news report on Sun TV on 9 December 2013 attracted strong reactions because they erroneously reported that the deceased were, was pushed out of the bus by the bus driver instead of being run over by accident, right? And so the High Commissioner to India, Lim Tuan Kwan, had to step in and ask Sun TV to, to apologize for the error. Wow. Yeah, there was a lot of downstream impact from this. Yeah, yeah, there, there really was a lot. Okay. You know, when, you, when we reflect on all of this, 
you can see that there were a lot of downstream effects. You have the overall business in, in Little India kind of took a hit because a lot of their biggest patrons who were these migrant workers were gone. All of this activity shifted back to the fringes where these dormitories were. So now the dormitories have, you know, entertainment centers, recreation centers. And actually, Elliot, you know, I was watching... Alan Imagine, the movie that you were recommending in our yeah. last episode. Uh, yeah. And I could, it was so interesting because one of the things that they were doing was basically a land center uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the dorm. In the dorm which itself, is, yeah. Yeah, which, which again goes to show these workers are basically congregating their whole lives in this space. So, and I, I you know, I'm just going to put this out there. It's, it's a bit ludicrous that amongst all the social distancing narrative, we as Singaporeans have an immense privilege to be in our own homes. We can stay at home, we can have our own rooms, and essentially even between me and my siblings, I can maintain more than one meter distance, right? Yeah. yeah. But for these migrant workers, it's a compound effect from some of the things that have been happening, whether it's our overall prejudice, whether it's our overall xenophobia, whether it's, you know, follow-up actions from this riot. We basically pushed them to the fringe. We've compacted them. We've said, you know, everything that you want to do, do within these spaces. And then we tell them also practice social distancing. Um, yeah, it's it, it's such a it's such a strange like position to put these people in as well. Like they they don't have a choice, you know. Like we, we <laughs> as much as we we like to believe that we give people choice, actually, we're not giving these guys much of an option. Yeah, and you can see with these reports that there's a lot of effort currently to investigate what's happening. The efforts on both parts, right? There's some levels of public relations management from from the government and the, and the dormitories and, and the employers. But you also have all these advocacy groups saying, we've been saying this for the longest time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so so it's super interesting. I think, I think people should take this issue seriously because as we can see, if we don't care about what's happening to uh, the most overlooked in our community, it can bite us uh, later on, right? Yeah. In this case, the spread of COVID-19 has just exploded. And let's say you don't even fear the COVID-19 virus. Hopefully, the fact that the circuit breaker has been extended makes you feel <laughs> the pain of not caring. Exactly, exactly. I, I really hope like we we take this a lot more seriously just because like, if, if it has to extend even further than this, I'm very sure a lot more people will start losing their minds. Uh. Like, like I'm actually perfectly fine, but I know that in, within my family alone, there are people who are starting to like tear at the seams. <laughs> yeah. So what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to give my resources as much as I can. I know people who are, you know, helping with packing food and and donating. You know, I'm I I, I wasn't planning to do this, but I'm just, I'm also gonna give a shout out for one of the many initiatives that I know exist. There's this thing called the Community Kitchen at Straits Clan. And they've been partnering with this initiative and collective called Home for All. And Home for All is trying to help the migrant workers by providing meals. They've been collecting money from a bunch of people. It's made up of advocacy groups, nonprofits, corporations. It's it's really a mixed community of, of people and they are all just trying to help with with some of the things that are happening. And I you know I've I've given some money. I would recommend people to go check it out. Unfortunately it's not tax deductible because the main target group is not Singaporean. But I still think it's worth giving even if it's you know ten dollars or, or twenty dollars. Something that we can do while we're at home to help with what's happening. 
I think that's really nice. That's that's a really good shout out at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to try to figure out what we can do uh, in this mm-hmm. time. And, and hopefully after all of this is done, the right people are held accountable. Uh, the right measures are taken to, to, to change how we do. And yes, we can acknowledge where we are at, but we want to be better. We should not do the same thing that we did with the riot and saying, you know, okay, we're going to scope this to just what we can immediately address, but to actually really tackle some of these underlying issues and to really make sure that we are cognizant of some of these other factors as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, I have nothing else to add to this topic for now. I think it's a, it's a very heavy topic and something for us to to try to process as we go on. Yeah, def- definitely. I think like, uh, but it's also a good thing to keep in mind right now, right? Especially in the climate that we're in um, and the fact that majority of our numbers actually are coming from the migrant uh, worker dormitories. I think it's it warrants enough conscious civil discourse. Like it's not it's not the easiest thing to talk about, right? Because like for us, this is now the bulk of the cases. They're not just local, local dudes anymore. We're talking about uh, people who are part of our society, but we tend to marginalize them. So, I mean, I, I, I want to see how it unfolds in the next couple of weeks, especially in the circuit breaker period. Uh, just really like deep down, sending out all my best wishes um, to these guys. And also for all those organizations that are doing their part to, uh, you know, ease the tensions, to also make things like a little bit easier. And then we, my family, we just donated a whole bunch of clothes because they, they've been asking for, um, they can't go back to the dorms to take like new sets of, of, of clothing. So uh, basically, we've been trying to like organize a drive to, to donate clothes to, to them that's really cool man yeah, yeah. It's, it's really it's, it's, I think it's the least we can do la. these are the guys that actually make it easier for us to live in Singapore okay cool and that's all I have cool. as well <laughs> <laughs> well uh, if you're listening hopefully this has inspired you to do something as well or to even find out more uh, do check out some of our other episodes for more information about what makes us Singaporean and how we can basically grow as a country. Until our next episode, I'm Rovic. 